0: chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 7. "'Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, "'I have bought to be my wife "'to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, "'that the name of the dead may not be cut off "'from among his brothers "'and from the gate of his native place. "'You are witnesses this day.' We now come—we um, come, actually come into the closing of Ruth. <laughs> Pretty surprising and shocking that it's going so quickly, um, but I guess it's been a few months now. And I think that overall, it's been quite a story, um, quite a, an, an enchanting, but also um, one of providence and one of wisdom for all of us for our daily lives. So, well, let's continue. Let's see how it all unfolds. Verse seven. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. We now come to a brief pause in the court record. The narrator decides to inform the readers of the practice which is about to be discussed. Um, some tend to think that verse 7 should, uh, would make more sense after verse 8, when it actually happens. But scholars note that the narrator may be purposefully putting this here as a pause for the readers to digest everything that has happened thus far. Allowing us to take in Boaz is in fact going to be the redeemer the woman hoped he would be. It is with this in mind, then, that we come to the explanation of the sandal. Um, First, we learn from the explanation itself that there is a separation between the original readers and the custom. We learn this when the narrator says, "...now this was the custom in former times." So we realize that whenever Ruth was written, the practice of the sandal was likely no longer in use. Um, Likewise, we learn that the custom was specifically geared toward redeeming and exchanging. We have already spent a great deal discussing redeeming, which is precisely what is happening in this case. When it comes to exchanging, it had more to do with commodities, so with grain or with sheep in those capacities. In order for such transactions then to be completed, it was necessary during the time period to have a nonverbal action Action, which was then um, when one would give away, or in this case, giving up the right of redemption, then one would give away the sandal. By doing this, all who were witnesses could see that the transaction had been completed. Likewise, if one were to try to rescind on the deal, then those who are witnesses of the transaction would be able to recall the handing over of the sandal as evidence for the legality of the transaction. So it is with this that verse 8 occurs when the Redeemer simply says, buy it for yourself, and then gives Boaz his sandal. Once this occurs, then Boaz is allowed to legally become the redeemer for the land, and he is now able to marry Ruth. We then come to verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Mahlon." We now begin Boaz's final and some would say climactic speech. We learn right away that the address is toward the elders and all the people. The elders were likely those who represented the ten elders whom he had called to bear witness to the event from the legal standpoint. The added all the people represents any who had decided to stop and listen to the proceedings and see what kind of transaction was taking place at the gate between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. To these individuals Boaz makes a proclamation that they are witnesses to the event which has taken place. Now, the ESV, along with most translations, makes it appear that Boaz has actually bought the land of Elimelech and his sons from Naomi. Yet, as we have seen, Especially last week. This doesn't appear to be the case since Naomi herself would not be in charge of the lands of Elimelech, being her, his widow and not his daughter. Also, the focus does not seem to be on the right to buy the land, but the right to redeem it indicating that the land is in the hands of someone outside of the clan. Lastly, the land has not yet been redeemed at this point, as Boaz would need to go to the one who is in charge of the land and have negotiations with the individual in order to redeem it. In other words, Naomi sought to redeem the land, and he is now the one who is able to do that. That's how he bought it from her, so to speak. He is now able to redeem it because she wanted it to be redeemed. Along with this, however, we do notice Boaz mentions Kilian and Malin. The reason for this likely has to do with inheritance purposes. Elimelech's sons would have been the ones to inherit the lands if they had survived. But since they have passed, there are none to inherit it. Boaz will then find a way for the inheritance to pass on to an heir of Elimelech. And he will do that by marrying the wife of one of his sons. We then come to verse 10. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. If the previous point was to focus on the land, which was to be redeemed, this one focuses on Ruth and Boaz' redemption slash intention to marry Boaz. Ruth. We notice immediately that Boaz specifies Ruth as the Moabite. This li- the likely reason for this is for proper court proceedings, for everyone to be on the same page and to know exactly who it is that Boaz is going to marry. This is further emphasized as we learn she is the widow of Mahlon. What has been kept a mystery for the previous two chapters is now revealed. Killian had married Orpah and Malin had married Ruth. Up until this point, it is unspecified who the wife was of the other. So it is now that Boaz buys or redeems the wife of Malon. Scholars note that the focus of verses 9 and 10 is really on Ruth. Whereas, the land is bought, uh, brought up for necessity, in the end, it is Ruth who gets the dominant emphasis. Part of this can be seen in how Boaz does not specify the reason he seeks to redeem the land. Conversely, He does specify why he seeks to redeem Ruth or to marry Ruth. And there are three reasons Boaz does this. The first is to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In this way, Boaz will seek to continue the line of Elimelech through Ruth. If this occurs, then the child will inherit the land of Elimelech and his sons. The second is that the name of the dead would not be cut off from his brothers. The focus here is within the clan itself. Boaz is seeking to continue the name of Elimelech, not only through the inheritance of the land, but specifically to allow his name to continue through the generations. Finally, the name of the dead would not be cut off from the gate. Um, By seeking this, Boaz looks to make sure that Elimelech and Malon Um, will be able to have representation at the town council. This makes sense when we consider that the gate is where such councils took place. Along with this, we notice Boaz challenges the elders and the people in regards to their being witnesses to the events. We also notice that he says, this day. This reminds us of Boaz's original intentions that he would see to the matter that will be done this very day. Boaz has fulfilled his promise and has fulfilled the words of Naomi who told Ruth that she should just rest and because he would not rest until the matter was finished that very day. Now we come to verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. We now learn the response of the people who were gathered at the gate. In Hebrew, there's no word for simply yes. So instead, they simply acknowledge their position by repeating what Boaz just said. We are witnesses. This way, they affirm and fulfill the roles of witnessing the transaction that had occurred between Mr. So-and-so and Boaz. We then get a fascinating statement from the crowd concerning Ruth. We notice that they invoke the name of Yahweh for Ruth, though they are ambiguous and simply call her the woman. It is significant that they would be seeking to invoke Yahweh to bless Ruth in this capacity, especially when we consider her to be a Moabite. Yet it appears that by recognizing that she is coming into your house, they accept her as part of the greater house of the tribe of Judah. But even more fascinating is that they hope that Yahweh grants her a place among the matriarchs, Rachel and Leah. They were the wives of Jacob by whom the twelve tribes originated. It is interesting that they would put Rachel ahead of Leah since Leah was the older of the two, and it was from Leah that actually Judah was descended. The likely reason for this is similar to Killian and Malon being mentioned as they were in verse 9, with the latter being the focus on the next verse. So too, Leah will be the focus concerning Judah. Just, that, just as they then built up the house of Israel, so Ruth is hoped will build up the house of Boaz. The focus is then shifted from Ruth to Boaz. The first half focuses on of Boaz acting worthily in Ephrathah. As we remember, Ephrathah was the clan name within the tribe of Judah. But what does it mean that he acts worthily? It is better translated as prosperity, that he would be prosperous in the clan of Ephrathah. And this makes sense, especially within the context of the marriage between Boaz and Ruth. Finally, the people hope that he will have renown in Bethlehem. This can mean a multitude of things, but it likely represents that his name, his reputation, would remain in Bethlehem. They also represent the hope that his descendants would remain in Bethlehem, again causing his name and reputation to remain in Bethlehem through them. We then come to verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. The blessing continues to focus on Boaz, and that his house would be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Judah was again the son of Leah and Jacob. Most scholars note that with the addition of Perez, Tamar, and Judah, that the correlation we have seen with the patriarchs in Ruth is valid. As we recall, the story of Genesis 38 also deals with a Leverite marriage, so to speak, um, with a heavy dose of betrayal. In that chapter, Tamar was the widow of Judah's son Ur. Ur er died without having a son, and his brother Onan refused to marry Tamar. Instead of waiting for Shelah, the younger brother, to grow up, Tamar tricked Judah, who was the father, into sleeping with her. It was from this that Tamar bore the twins Perez and Zerah to Judah. Ultimately, the descendants of Perez became rather influential, and it was actually from Perez that Boaz's own clan originated. It seems likely, then, that the reason for going to Tamar was not to show the similarity in personhood with Ruth, nor the similarity in conception. Instead, the focus seems to be in two areas. The so first is with the Levite focus that is found in Genesis 38. And the second is, despite the immoral sexual encounter between Judah and Tamar, God still gave them Perez and Zerah. If God would give twin sons after such an affair, then how much more likely would God bless Boaz and Ruth, who have shown nothing but the highest ethic through their hested? So that is the hope for Boaz, the blessing he received from the people, that God would bless the union of Boaz and Ruth with offspring. Just as the union of Tamar and Judah brought the prominent Perez, so the hope was that the union of Boaz and Ruth would bring the prominent offspring as well. The people likely had no idea how prophetic their blessing on the union between Boaz and Ruth would be. Now, the main point of this section is to present us with the conclusion of the court proceedings. Mr. So-and-so ceded his right to redeem the land and to marry Ruth. Therefore, Boaz had made it known that he will take the necessary steps to redeem both, with the end hope that the name of Elimelech would continue through him. In this, Boaz shows again his worthiness by providing the highest ethical standard of Israel, which is hesed, even toward the deceased. Now this leads us to our application points. The first is to bear witness. In this week's text, we saw the importance of not only Mr. So-and-so and Boaz, who have predominantly held the main stage throughout the legal process, but also the importance of a third party, which are the witnesses. The elders of the people are to bear witness to everything that has occurred. If something in the future were to come up, That put into question the rights involved in the proceedings, then it was the responsibility of the witnesses to step in and say what had occurred in their midst. The importance of being a witness should not be understated. Even in our own legal system, witnesses can offer valuable information concerning a crime that had taken place. They can help an innocent man go free, or they can cause a guilty man to be punished. Likewise, they can present invaluable evidence for the truth of the situation. The same is the case for ancient Israel. In fact, it should not surprise us to find the important, importance of witnesses. It was so important that it is one of the Ten Commandments. One should not bear false witness. While most conclude that this simply means one should not lie, contextually, it leans mo- more toward a legal setting. When one appears before a court, then one should not bear false witness. We see the results of one who bears fault witness, false witness in Deuteronomy nineteen sixteen through 20 which says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Along with this comes a few references in Proverbs, 19.5 and 19.9, which say, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And verse 9, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Clearly, we see that to bear a false witness is not good at all. So the clear application from just a legal standpoint is that we are to make sure that we bear truthful witness. This is true not only when it comes to court, but also when it comes to each other, which is the broader application. When someone asks if someone else did something, then our response should be truthful regardless of the person. If we don't know, then say it plain. And if you do, then don't hesitate to speak the truth. One has to wonder why bearing false witness is such an abomination to God. One would venture the reason for this stems from who God is. He is the God of truth. The absolute truth is that he is there and that he is not silent. To bear false witness against someone is to go against the truth, and to go against the truth is antithetical to God himself. That is the first application, then, to this topic of bearing witness. Along with this thought is another about our lives. Our lives, how we live, are important witnesses to something significant, and that is to whom we belong. If our lifestyles are wrought in unrepentant sin, with no desire for anything other than sin, then the witnesses of our lives is that they are still bound into sin and outside of salvation. Conversely, if God has some, done something m- majestic in our lives, if our hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, If the gospel has borne fruit, then that fruit will be a repentant lifestyle away from sin. It will cause people to turn from their sin and to turn to God. Such a lifestyle is the witness of the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit within the believer. That the person who was once dead in sin, lost in darkness, has now come to life and is in the light of Christ. So we see two applications within this single application point. The first is that we are to make sure that we do not bear false witness against each other or against others. We should be truthful in our dealings with individuals. Likewise, if you are saved by grace, then know that your life is a witness to the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are living to glorify God, then know that it is in That this is in itself a witness to the very God who saves. This should encourage us greatly to realize just how powerful a changed life can be. How God even uses us as instruments of his glory to show that he does, in fact, exist. If God did not exist, then no change would be able to take place. As it is, we can know the change, and we can know the relationship between ourselves and God, which changes by the grace of God through the gospel. So be a good witness, bear fruit, and live in the light of Jesus Christ, knowing your life is a witness to the power of God within the world. Now the second point that comes to mind is blessing. Another important point to notice in this text is the blessing issued by the people. As stated already, it was a rather prophetic message to be said by them, but we'll have to leave the prophetic notion behind us for the time being, because we'll probably come to it, obviously, next week. Instead, we want to focus on the blessing itself, how it is going to be through God that the family of Boaz would prosper, have abundance, not only financially, but through children as well. The latter point is especially important to consider. As we all know, Ruth has already been seen to be barren. She is incapable of having children. If she were able to have children, then the women wouldn't be in the situation that they were in thus far in the book. As it is, there are no children, there are no grandchildren, and so the women have up until this point been in a state of sorrow over their situation. Now, however, there is hope. The hope stems from the marriage which will occur between Boaz and Ruth. This marriage will now have potential to allow the line of Elimelech to continue assuming Boaz and Ruth have a son. This is the thing about this blessing. The blessing does not focus on the individuals procreating in order to bring fruition. Instead, the focus is on Yahweh, the God who is invoked to bless the marriage in this way. The first and obvious thing that we notice this of this end is that um, what we consider children. In current times children can be seen as a commodity or they can even be seen as an accident or a mistake. How many times do you know of people saying well he was an accident? I, I've heard it. I don't know if anyone else has. I think we all have friends or family, or I'm assuming we do, who have willingly stated that they were not expecting or trying to make a child, but here the child is. It's to this frame of mind I want to get us away from. All too often we can think of children in this way, when in truth children are a blessing. There is no accidental child in the scriptures, there is no oops child. There is no child who is born or conceived who does not have the same high status of being made in the image of God. Because of this, should it surprise us that the Scriptures speak so highly of children, calling them a blessing? Should it surprise us to see that they are holy according to the Scriptures? No. Our current society is twisted in its understanding of of children. Sadly, this view of children has... um, as something less than that they actually are, has permeated into some church circles as well. It makes me think of a friend I know. He and his wife were going through some rough times, and in the midst of their rough times, it was found out that they were pregnant. The response from their predominantly Christian family was, oh no, as though having a child in these circumstances was the worst thing in the world. Meanwhile, only one person who was told about the about the pregnancy, gave thanks to God and true congratulations for the new blessing. Only one individual looked at them and had the initial reaction, God is good. What has happened to the church when such a response is the minority when it comes to children? What has become of our basic understanding of the importance of humanity being made in the image of God? Is it possible that the majority of us have begun to forget just how wonderfully and beautifully made all children are. We as Christians have fought a fight to preserve human life. But when we respond to such situations, when we respond to individuals who become pregnant not under the most financially sound circumstances or even under the preferred criteria through marriage, if we respond to such instances with negativity, sorrow, even groans then how can anyone take us seriously on our stances concerning human life when we react to human life in such a way? How can anyone respond positively to our stances when we respond so negatively to human life? I understand how there are plenty of circumstances which people find themselves with children. We are the first to come to the conclusion that such circumstances are not always good. We shouldn't glorify over the circumstances. But our response should never be a lack of joy, but a desire to help those who are in such circumstances to fully realize the blessing they have been given by God so that they may rejoice in the Lord and have joy at the blessing the Lord has given through their children. Ultimately, We need to make sure we fight against a common cultural motif concerning children. That common theme is that that having children at too early of an age will ruin your life. That common theme that says having them, unless everything is set in stone or perfect, your ducks in a row, is a mistake. Unless you are well off, you shouldn't even consider having children. We need to stand against such views and take on the same view afforded to us by God at the beginning of humanity, where we are told, and God blesses them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. All too often, this verse in Genesis is used to say that it's a command in other words, people will say that we are commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply. Yet that's not what the text says. Instead it says, God blesses them. It is a blessing for us to have children, to be fruitful and to multiply. We see this as the common biblical theme for children in the book of Genesis. Genesis. When we consider the patriarchs and the matriarchs, it is a blessing when they produce children. And God is the one who is praised when the children is conceived and the birth is happening. It is with all of this that when we look at the blessing of the witnesses on Boaz and Ruth, the blessing itself focuses on them having offspring together. A sign that their marriage has been blessed will be that they have progeny, that they have children. That is consistent with the prophets. Consider Malachi. During the time of prophecy, there were many divorces which were occurring. Malachi prophesied that the faithfulness, the faithlessness of the husbands toward their wives was wrong by saying, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the spirit, and do not be faithless. And that's Malachi two thirteen through 16. In the New Testament, Paul picks up on this theme as well, saying, To the rest I say, Children are holy. They are special, sacred, set apart. And Malachi is the reason the two were brought together to begin with, so that they would have godly offspring. In Christian tradition we see the same theme in the Westminster confession chapter twenty four it's on marriage and article two states marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with end of the church with an with an holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. The church history, we see a clear case that one of the primary purposes of marriage is for children. This does not go against the argument that children are a blessing, but it is a reminder that when we seek to get married, it is part of the main hope of marriage that God would bless the union through children. So when we consider all of this, when we consider the blessing stated in Ruth, let's be a people who seek this same blessing toward each other. Let's be a people who seek to honor God's blessing on individuals by praising God when children are conceived and thanking God for children regardless of the circumstances. Let's be a people who seek to help individuals who may not understand the blessing or who feel that they are not well equipped Well, let's help them become equipped to enjoy the blessing that God has bestowed on them. I am sure that there is much more to talk about concerning marriage and all the other stuff that were brought up. But that's not the point. The focus is on the children themselves. These image bearers of God who have such great worth according to the scriptures. Let's make sure that they have great worth to us as well. Because again, any and every child is born in the image of God. We now come to the final point, which is the gospel. All of this reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether it is in an act of redemption, which has just occurred, the legality of the situation, or it reminds us of the legality of our own redemptions, how we bear witness to what God has done through our own redemption, or when we consider the great blessing of children and how we too are now children of God through Christ. All of these things remind us of the gospel, and should encourage us to praise God in his infinite mercy, grace, and wisdom. The gospel begins with our origins. We are created, or God created all things by the power of his word. He is the first cause of all things. He is the only one without a cause, because he has no beginning. For he has always was, and always is, and always will be. All of the cosmos, however, does have a beginning, and because of that, a cause, which is God. Last of all the cosmos to be created was humanity, whom God made in his image. Because God is a God of love, of reason, he knows, can be known, has personhood, and shows Hesed. we do as well. It is here that we find dignity, worth, and sanctity to all human life. But like God, we are able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience and life, or choose to follow disobedience and sin and death. We chose the latter and have chosen that ever since. And because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. And we continue to accrue a greater, more guilt before our God every day. And because of that, we are worthy of condemnation and judgment. God did not leave us in our sorrow without hope forever. Instead, he sent his light and his word into the darkness. And that is Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by him we are justified before our holy God and righteous God. It is through his blood we are cleansed from our sin. It is in his victory that we find our own victory in life and over death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance from sin. We are to turn away from sin and turn to God. We are to live lifestyles that are congruent with the scriptures With Christ as revealed by the Scriptures, in step with the Holy Spirit. We are to seek to live for the glory of God above all, and in this way we bear witness to the power of God in us for our salvation by how we live. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we are able to do which saves us from our sins, it is what Christ has done. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone that we are saved. For those who remain in disobedience, there is only condemnation. None can stand before God with their deeds in hand. Not even their best deeds can stand before God because there is filthy rags before a holy and righteous God. Therefore, to stand before God without any atonement for sin is to stand in judgment for the moral guilt which of sin that we all have apart from christ for those who are obedient however there is no longer condemnation instead they receive the love reserved for the son of god they enter into the joy of knowing god as their father in heaven they're able to have victory over sin in this life and victory over death in the next not because of what they do but because of what christ has done in the end, they become co-heirs of an eternal kingdom of peace with their God forever. In all these things, we give praise to God for the gospel revealed to us through the scriptures. We give thanks to when we consider the providence necessary to bring forth Boaz and Ruth together. We give thanks when we consider the witnesses who could testify to the events which occurred during the legal process. We give thanks to God for being imminently involved in the lives of those whom he has blessed. Thanks be to God for his love, which gives us all the reason to praise and worship him. Amen. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your love. We ask that you would continue to regenerate us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to guide us by the hand and have us walk the steps that you would have us walk. We ask you to lead us down that narrow road and for us to never look back because we know that the goal, the prize, is before us, and that is your glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you have done. And we ask you to continue to bless us according to your word. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn. And My hope is built on nothing less, number 405. You might need to get out your hymn books for it, just so you're aware. Until Betsy gets back. She's coming.